Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. Everyone, welcome back to Talking Tudors, episode 126. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger, and I'm so glad that you could join me. As this is the first episode of the month, I'd like to begin by thanking the wonderful patrons who continue to support this podcast and welcome patrons who joined the Talking Tudors family in August. A very warm welcome to Jacqueline, Vilma, Johanna, Rosemary, Camille, Dean Lodge, Lauren and Nancy. Thank you so much to S. Burns, Janice, Jessica, Richard, J. Maravi, Robin, Kay, Stephanie, a warm welcome to Lauren, Megan, Narelle, L. Bridges, Alyssa, Corrine, Kim, Mel and Louise. I'm so very grateful for your immense generosity and support. If you love the podcast and tune into every episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. September's prize is an Elizabeth I acrylic block, the perfect addition to any bookshelf, desk or study. Thank you to Philippa from British History Travels for sponsoring this wonderful prize. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors live sessions, which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. At the end of this month, I'll be chatting to Dr. Owen Emerson and Claire Ridgway about their new book, The Berlins of Hever Castle. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to talk about the Bible in Tudor times is Dr. E.L. Poleg. E.L. Poleg is a senior lecturer in material history at Queen Mary University of London. His work combines the analysis of books and objects with the study of pre-modern religion. He trained in history, photography, comparative religion, and book history, all invaluable in the study of the medieval and early modern Bible. He explores how Bibles were created and used, and how people, lay and religious alike, got to know their Bibles in the Middle Ages and early modernity. He's fascinated by the information contained in medieval books and objects, and develops new means for their analysis, often in collaboration with scientists, curators, and librarians. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles.
welcome to Talking Tudors, Eyal. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be with you. It's lovely to have you on the show. Now, I suppose a good place to start is by you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about your background. Okay, thank you very much. So I'm a senior lecturer in material history at Queen Mary University of London. Um, My training is a little bit all over the place. So I was trained in history, but also theology and comparative religion. I did my undergraduates in the strange combination of that and documentary photography and a master in comparative religion in the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And then I moved to London for a PhD. And from there, uh, I had research and teaching positions in in Edinburgh and Oxford before coming back to London and settling at Queen Mary. Wonderful. Thank you. And and I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit about your most recent book, which is A Material History of the Bible, England, 1200 to 1553. So maybe just a little bit about why you decided to write this and what our listeners can expect to see if they if they purchase that book. I've been working on the Bible for a really long time. Uh, now I'm actually moving away. So this is the last installment in a trilogy and, and I'm, I'm actually ready to move away now. But much of my work was on how people got to know the Bible in the Middle Ages. And doing that, I realized there's a need for more work to be done on two spheres that I try to bring together in the last book. One is to look at the Bible as an object. So this is the material history. So, so most work on the Bible has been about translations and the Bible is a text, uh, mainly by literary scholars. And what I'm interested in is the Bible as a book. So how it was made, how it was read, what is the link between the way it was made and read and the way people got to know the Bible? Because it was not just an objective way of presenting the Bible to different audiences, but all these small things uh, that print historians are actually looking at, so change of type, title pages, images, had a great impact on how people actually got to know their Bibles. So this is one part of, of, of what drove me to write a book. The other is the need to do this kind of long history of the Bible. And the book took a long time to write. So actually, I started it when my elder son was born, and he's now nearly 13. So it's an interesting way of measuring time, because I tried to do an in-depth survey of Bibles across a very long period, so from 1200 to 1553. And there hasn't been any work like that that actually looks in-depth. There have been some important survey books, uh, like Christopher de Hamel of David Daniels, for example, but they look at even a wider period. And, and, and in a way, inevitable, that they rush through the periods and look at key Bibles. And what I wanted to do is to stop and think about this long period and what changed and what remained of that. And, and in order to do that, I, I looked at hundreds of biblical manuscripts and early prints. And the book is, I must say, I'm, I'm surprisingly for me, I'm happy with the book. Uh, usually after you finish a book, you, you put it aside and don't want to see it anymore. But the British Academy, and who were responsible for publishing that with Oxford University Press, did a tremendous job about the book. And, and allowed me to put dozens and dozens of, of color images and still keep the, the price reasonably affordable. So it was important for me to, for people to be able to buy the book. So there's a paperback as well as a hardback. And I'm personally, I'm pretty happy with the results. It sounds like an incredible resource, definitely. So we're going to talk about some of those things that you mentioned just then in your response. But before we dive into that, I just wanted to ask you, what do we actually know of the earliest Bible that was printed in England? 
So this is quite a peculiar book and very few people have actually looked at it because it's a failed experiment. And this is one of the things that I learned to appreciate whilst researching for the book is people tend to look at this kind of milestones of English culture and religion. But what I became interested in is actually the failed experiments. One of my favorite words while writing the book was underwhelming. <laughs> All these things that people don't have, haven't looked at so much in terms of appreciating the Bible, but in reality, they tell us much more than these huge landmarks because they showed us the failed gambits. They showed us what didn't work, what people expected at the time, because we have both the pros and the cons of retrospect, of, of looking backwards and see what happened. And we know how the story ended. But at the time, people did not know that. And this first Bible is the best example of that, I think. It was printed quite late. It was printed in 1535. Whereas in, on the continent, Bibles have been printed for nearly a century by then. England was quite lagging behind for two reasons. One is theological. So following the Lollard controversy, there's been an anxiety about vernacular Bibles and Bibles in general in England. The second reason is practical. English printing was not very good, and to say the very least. And there was no paper mill in England, apart from a very, very short spell in about uh, for, uh, 1500. Uh, so that meant that printing was done elsewhere. And the Bible is a long and complicated book to print. So printing of Bibles took place on the continent, but not really in England. And the first Bible to be printed was in 1535 by Thomas Bertlett, the king's printer, Henry VIII's printer. And he tried to print a book that would appeal to all sides. He realized how difficult the political and religious situation in England is, but also how lucrative it would be to print a Bible that people would actually buy. So he tried to cover everything. The Bible was in Latin, and that, of course, doesn't fit with paradigms of the English Reformation. This is one of the reasons that why people haven't been really, really looking at this Bible. And But he tried to remove from that Bible any references to mainstream Catholicism or the Pope or anything like that. So he actually hijacked a work written by a Franciscan, but removing any mention of that Franciscan author for, from the Bible. And he also tried to create a book to the best of his efforts, which weren't that good. So he wasn't able to print a full Bible. He printed just half a Bible saying, expect the second volume, but that was more theoretical than practical. The second volume never saw the light of day. And he wanted a book still that would appeal to Henry. And, and it looked like either Henry or his Latin secretary actually wrote a preface to the book. But royal support, if was ever hesitantly granted, was pulled out very quickly. And I think one of the reasons for that, and this is here going back to the importance of the materiality of the Bible, is the fact that it's not a very nice book. And Henry had an eye for beautiful things. And the Bible, that Bible is just, it's a small quarto, not very good printing. It recycled the title page, which was quite common among printers at the time, but, but really the wrong title page, because it's a generic title page that was actually used for the first time for a book celebrating Henry's, Henry's marriage to Catherine of Aragon. So you can imagine that Henry wouldn't really be a big fan of this kind of Bible, especially that within a few months, Coverdale was printing his Bible. And because printing was so abysmal in England, Coverdale went to the continent and ended up with a really nice book and a nice title page. So it was obvious that Bertolet Gamble failed, but it began a chain of reactions of the printing of Bibles in England. Yeah, that's a really fascinating story. And I must say, not one that I have 
really heard before, which is kind of shocking, isn't it? So thank you for sharing that with us. So um, just one quick question about the Bible that was printed in 1535. So were many copies made? Do we know? Was it or, or was it just the, the sort of prototype and it and it didn't get further than that? We don't have any external information about how many copies were made. We have seven surviving copies, which is not bad, actually. And one of the things I've seen in that Bible is that it's, uh, there are some hand corrections that appear to be the same in all copies. And that suggests that it's, it's a relatively small print run, so I would say. Anything between 500 and 2,000 is, is, is logical. What's interesting also is the afterlife of this Bible, because it was used by a lot of different people. So because there are only seven copies surviving, I was able to survey almost all of them. There's one in, in the United States that I wasn't able to get my hands on, but hopefully one day. And, and it's really interesting to see who's using it. So, so I see it in the hands of academics in Cambridge, both reformers and traditionalists. I noticed the signatures of children. I was able actually to find these children in, in, in uh, an early uh, 17th century record. Uh, so they're practicing their signatures in, in that book. The most exciting copy, I think, is in Lambeth Palace Library. And, and it seemed to be a blank copy. So, so a clean copy, it means I mean, there's no annotations, which is quite boring for people like me. <laughs> the, Lambeth Palace has two copies. And by accident, I ordered that copy instead of the one I thought would be more interesting. And, you know, it take about half an hour for the librarian to, to bring you what you wanted. So I was stuck with that copy that was completely not very interesting for me for half an hour. And, and then I saw some letters peeping through the pages. And I, I started looking more carefully in it. I realized that actually someone pasted heavy paper on blank what blank what was originally a blank spaces in the book which got me very interested and i used a light sheet which is just it's like a light bulb that is a sheet of paper you can put between pages and and get a good image and it looks like someone wrote heavily annotated notes on the margins and on black spaces and then it was covered in paper so of course i became really interested to know what's written on these uh, notes unfortunately it was written on an, on the other side of the pages something printed so once you do a light a light source from behind you get everything together it makes wow. it nearly impossible to read luckily after a few months of, of trial and error and thinking what to do and of course not wishing to peel the the, the paper myself graham davis who's a professor in the school of dentistry at queen mary came to the rescue and he specializes in complex imaging and 3D imaging. So we had a few sessions in Lambeth Palace, took some more images, and he wrote an algorithm that just peeled off layers virtually and were able to clean it 100%, which was great. And what we found quite surprised us. We found a table of lessons from the Great Bible, sort of an English Bible that was written about 10 years later, suggesting that the Latin Bible, this very early printed Bible, was actually used according to the English liturgy. And again, needing to rethink the course of reform in England, saying actually Latin and English did not go one against, one against the other. But actually people were trying to read the Latin, but according to Henry's new English liturgy. So obviously something more complicated was taking place. And the other fun, th uh, fun element I found in the very last page, there was a contract between two people. And one of the persons had a very peculiar name. It says James Ellis Catpurs. I'm sure, sure many of the listeners would actually be familiar with that, but I was less so. It's a pickpocket in, in Tudor times because you wore your purse as a pocket. Yeah. So a cat purse will come and cut your purse and take your money. I thought it's a very peculiar name. <laughs> and I was trying to figure out who it was. And I found a record on, in, uh, written by a, a London merchant in 1552, July, saying he went to Tyburn to see the hanging of James Ellis, the best cat purse and pickpocket in England, which was, of course, a very 
unfortunate thing for, for Mr. Katpers, but very useful for me because I was able to date that thing because usually you cannot date very, very well transactions in, in books, but this obviously took place before 1552 uh, when Mr. Katpers was hanged. So it showed me also the quick transition of that book, written in 1535, within 10 years it was used already within the English liturgy, but a few years later it's in the hands of crooks. So it, it was a really interesting test case for, for this kind of methodology also of understanding the way the Bible was read and used. Another fascinating story. I love the detective work as well. That's part of, you know, what I love about history, I think. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit more about the production and the use of Bibles in Tudor times. Do you think you can tell us a little bit about that, please? Well, this is, in a way, one of the advantages of looking at Bibles over over a very long period of time, because you can see both the continuities and the changes. And in their appearance, actually, Bibles in Tudor times or early modern Bibles really replicated the Latin medieval Bible. So, so in terms of appearance, the big revolution is actually in 1230, when we have a pocket, small pocket Bibles being disseminated, still handwritten across Europe, it's Latin Bible, but it looks like the kind of Bibles one would use today. So the fact that you have a Bible in one book, written in two columns, with running titles and chapter numbers, is all an invention of the 1230s. And then Tudor books replicated that by and large. But there are important changes in terms of production and dissemination, and they took place over a very short period of time. So the first Bible was printed in 1535 in England, but within a few decades, the market changed completely. And part of that is because of the push of reformers. So think about Thomas Cromwell or Cranmer. They were trying very hard to put the Bible in the layman's hand. And they created the Great Bible, and probably we'll talk about a bit about it later on. And that was a revolution in a way that hasn't been noticed by uh, historians of the Bible or of religion or of English religion, because people assume, even today, that the idea of a parish Bible is a medieval thing. But that is wrong, if, if I may say so. I know historians don't like using this term, because if you look at, at records from parish churches, they did not need to have a parish Bible, they did not have a use for a parish Bible, and by and large did not own a parish Bible. The idea of having a parish Bible is a reformer's idea that started really in the 16th century. And the Great Bible broke new grounds, not in its appearance, but in the fact that it was the first time really that a Bible was mandated for every parish church across the realm. And that's a huge transformation. The other thing that had a huge impact on the dissemination of Bibles is the introduction of print, because a lot of printers were evangelicals or had some affinity to the evangelical cause, but at the end of the day, they needed to make money. Now, in the handwritten period, so the manuscript era, Bibles were produced for individual patrons. Possibly some of them were sold off the, off the peg, so, so you go into a shop, you could buy a, a Bible, there's some discussions about it, but it still is producing one Bible at a time, okay? So you l- limit your risks. Printers needed to produce much. You would not print one book. And the big money was actually in the second edition. Okay, so you needed to ensure, you needed a lot of initial capital, but also to ensure your books would sell. And that's why printers went bankrupt all the time, starting with Gutenberg himself, because it was such a risky business. And they didn't understand the market forces at the beginning. It took them a lot of time. And the Bible, as I said before, is a complicated book to write. 
it's long, you have to write the right divisions, you have to be accurate. So it's not the easiest book to print. So printing the Bible was slightly risky. This is one of the reasons for the, why the Great Bible was mandated for every parish church, because it forced an audience. So it, it mitigated the risks of printers. And printers were working very hard to sell their books. And that's resulted in opening new markets. So a, a wonderful example is slightly after uh, Henry VIII's time, in, in, in Edward VI's time, which was a really a time of explosion of Bible production, because Henry was always hesitant about it. But Edward, it was just, you know, get them rolling. And printers really experimented with Bibles then. And, and John Day, who was one of the most important printers at the time, he was linked to the evangelical cause, but he also needed to sell his Bible. So he created this kind of large parish Bibles, but also small pocket Bibles. And he said it was also for people who could not afford the full Bible, but obviously it was opening new markets while doing that. And between 1535, the first Bible print in England, and 1553, the death of Edward VI, the market and the supply and the appearance of Bible just transformed completely across England. And is there any evidence to sit, like, I'm just interested in hearing about the Bible in people's homes. Do we know anything about that? Are people, so they're accessing it at their parish church, but are, are they buying Bibles for their own houses? So it's a good question. It's one that is difficult to answer especially because we look at a very short period of time. And the idea of the family Bible is slightly later. So partially we know that people owned Bibles already in the Middle Ages, but these were really the most influential people. Thomas of Woodstock, Henry IV, Henry V owned Bibles. Uh, a lot of them owned English Bibles, actually, Wycliffeite Bibles in theoretical, theoretically heretical, but they are very happy to own it. Lady Clare owned a few Bibles, but it's, and we see them popping up in wills. Uh, that's usually where, where we find them. But up to the 1550s, it's mostly very, very wealthy people or evangelicals, but mainly a lot of them are institutional. The New Testaments would be owned by more people. Uh, Books of Pharaohs, which I think yes. we had an earlier podcast about, uh, yeah. about these, were very common among the laity. The thing is also, what would people do with the Bible? Because the Bible is a very long book. They don't need it for church services up until 1549. Most elements there are redundant or not very interesting. I don't know how many people read the Bible cover to cover, but a lot of things are, you know, all the genealogies of, of Jewish tribes and, and the minutiae of, of dietary laws, you know, people wouldn't find it so interesting. And it wasn't an ideal to read the Bible completely among the laity. So in monasteries, yes, monasteries, there is an attempt to do a continuous reading. And this is the model that Cranmer is using in 1549 with the Book of Common Prayer, is trying to take what, happened, what happens in, monast in, in monasteries and use that for parish churches. And then that gets rolled over to individual homes with the most reformed evangelicals. So, so what we see, and I see that uh, quite often in, in, in the book, is something that starts in a very small clerical elite in the 13th century, more or less, then gets trickles down very, very gradually over centuries. So innovative ideas at the very first universities in Paris and Oxford and Cambridge and Bologna uh, that are taking place in the 1230s. By the 1400s, you find them in uh, nunneries, for example, and private chapels. And nunneries are really in the forefront of vernacular learning at the time. And then in the 16th century, you find them in, in private, you begin to find them in private homes. So it's a very, very long process of, of change. And talk to us about some of the other early attempts to secure royal patronage and to produce this national Bible. 
so, so the best example is the Great Bible, which is a fascinating book. So the the person really behind that Bible is Thomas Cromwell. So he's working really hard to convince Henry in, in the merits of uh, a parish Bible, an English Bible. And he's responsible for passing legislation in 50, from 1536, mandating that each parish church to have a Bible. Originally, it's a Latin and an English Bible, but the Latin is getting dropped quite earlier on. And his ideal there is probably twofold. One is his evangelical stand. So he actually believes that people should have access to the Bible. The other is the way he thinks about politics and obedience. And the title page of the Great Bible is one of the clearest manifestations of that thinking process. And for people who haven't seen that, first of all, I would recommend Googling it because it, it's, it's a beautiful image. And uh, what you see there is Henry reigns at the top. And this is really a clear way of distilling Cromwell and Henry's idea of what the Bible should be. So Henry enthroned is sitting at the top of the page. God is actually squished against the upper margin. Sounds like Henry. Henry. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I measured, I think Henry is about 4.3 times larger than God in that specific image. And Henry is giving Bibles to a person on his right and on his left. And the person on his right is distributing the Bibles to the clergy. And the person on his left is distributing the Bible to the laity. It's affiliated with Cromwell. And then, so there's... Two people, one on each side of Henry, and two people below them. So the two people receiving the Bible and two people giving the Bible, one to the clergy and one to the laity. And the one who's giving the Bible to the laity is near the coat of arms of Cromwell, and the one who's giving the Bible to the, the clergy is near the coat of arms of Cranmer. And then the Bible is reaching the population. And at the bottom register of, of the image, you see the laity listening, none of them actually holding a Bible, but they're listening to the word of God carried by a preacher, and all of them are shouting, long live the king and viva tracks. Apart from three people in a prison who shout nothing. So Henry is very clear about what happens if you're not following the script. Uh, and this is really how Cromwell and how Henry envisioned the, the dissemination of Bible. So the Bible is disseminated as a state enterprise, and the outcome should be greater obedience to the monarch. And that had a huge appeal to Henry. Henry wanted to think of himself as a biblical monarch. And disseminating the Bible really fitted with that imagery. And Cromwell was able to use that to, to harness Henry's support for the Great Bible. So originally, when, when I wrote the, the chapter on the Great Bible, I called it the Great Bible as a seesaw, because sort of Henry's attitude is sort of a seesaw between support. And then the more I looked at that, the more I realized, actually, it's not true. Henry did not waver. He had a very clear idea what the Bible is. Reality disappointed him. That was the problem. Because Henry wanted to spread the word of God to be this kind of biblical monarch who gives the Bible to the laity. And in return, the laity should embrace Henry's ideals and support him and become more obedient to the monarch. And that more is what Cromwell promised him. But it didn't work like that. So Henry supported the printing of the Great Bible, or at least did not object to it. And Cromwell was able to send a team to Paris because Cromwell knew that Henry would appreciate a nice book. And there was not a single printer in England who could produce such a nice book. So they took work with Renoir, the, the, one of the leading printers in Paris, who was, was printing for the English market for 20 years by then. And the, the production team, the two people from, from London, uh, from the haberdasher companies, 
together with Coverdale, who was responsible for, the, for revising the translation, moved to Paris for the printing of the Great Bible. And we have a little bit of the correspondence between them. So that's quite nice, actually, because usually we know nothing about how Bibles were printed. But there we have about three letters written to, to Cromwell from Paris, telling him about the, 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 the process. So, so they print that in Paris. And then uh, at one point, authorities clamped down on production and they and confiscated the, the, the pages because of political tension between France and England. But uh, the French authorities actually allowed them to move the printing press and the type of all and all the machinery to London. So they're able to finish the printing of the Bible in London. And the Bible was printed in seven editions in quick succession. So between 1539 and 1541, seven editions, which is not, not a bad print run, actually. But what happened is that the Bible actually made its way to parish churches. But uh, the, the, the name I chose for the Great Bible, uh, the chapter on the Great Bible, eventually was the Great Bible is a useless book. Because it really shows, if you look at the, its materiality, it really shows how it made no sense at the time. Because if we move away from this kind of view of the English Reformation as a single moment that changed everything, we realize it's just a mess. And this is what happened in, in, in 1539, 1540. Because every parish church was mandated to buy a Bible, and they actually had to pay for it. So it was not sponsored by the state. They had to pay for their Bible. Half of it was for the, uh, paid by the curate and half by the parishioners. So they paid good money, about 12 shillings, to, 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 and, and transportation costs were even more so, to buy this very, very large and very impressive book. But nobody really told them what to do with it. So Cranmer wrote a new liturgy, church worship, to use the Bible. But he realized that Henry does not support that. So he shelved that. So that existed only in a draft form. So the liturgy was still primarily medieval, so not using a, a full Bible. Church architecture was also med still medieval. So the priest was doing his business on one side of the root screen, the parishioners were doing their business on the other side. Now the Bible was chained to a table on the parishioners, in the nave, in the parishioners' side of business, okay? So the priest wasn't able to use it. So there are all sorts of, we have many complaints about what's happening with the Bible, and that is really illuminating, because some people complain about the, the Bible gathering dust, and nobody's reading it. Some reformers are complaining about priests who are plucking the Bible from the place of the laity and taking them to their side of the church, which of course is what they need to do if they ever want to use it. But the worst thing ever is that people started to read the Bible. So imagine you're a parishioner in the 1540s. You just paid good money to buy this new Bible. It's on your side of the church. What do you do with it? Maybe read it whilst the priest is actually giving the service. That's the worst possible thing because that infuriated Henry. But people began to read the Bible and think their own thoughts and get into disputations. And Henry could not stand that. So in 1543, he mandates that people are not allowed to read the Bible anymore. He says, only people of a certain class, of a certain income, are allowed to read the Bible. Women, and then he comes with all sorts of apprentices, journeymen, etc., are not allowed to read the Bible. So I originally thought about it as a seesaw, but actually, if you look at the original image, the title page of the Great Bible, you just see everything there. These are the people in church who are not doing what Henry expects them to do. It's an incredible image. I was looking at it the other day. It's just so typical of Henry. I think it's incredible. Now, I believe that you're currently 
taking part in a scientific analysis of the presentation copy of the Great Bible. And I know that you've made some exciting discoveries. So I'm hoping that you'll share some of those with us. Yes. So, so this is uh, work that I'm doing with Paolo Ricciardi, who's the chief scientist at the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge. And uh, it really started as kind of a blue sky thinking. So Paula has an analytical lab at the Fitzwilliam Museum and is an expert in analyzing manuscripts and early books from the scientific perspective. And we thought we we're going to find something interesting. So when the Great Bible was printed in Paris, one of the letters says, we're sending you a sample because we're printing two Bibles on parchment, one for you, for Cromwell and one for Henry. So the Bible was printed, the regular Bibles were printed on papers, and these two copies were printed on parchment, which is of course more expensive and more difficult, and they're hand-colored. All the title pages, the Bible has five title pages, and all the woodcuts and everything is hand-colored. These are really beautiful books. Both of them actually survived, one in St. John's College, Cambridge, and the other in the National Library of Wales. And we were able to convince uh, both places to lend them, lend us their Bibles. And we got them to the lab. And we didn't know what we were going to find. And we just used a whole range of non-invasive technologies. So technologies that do not damage the book or actually touch the book itself, with, with one small exception of touching. But uh, so, so, so librarians are usually pretty happy for us to use these kind of technologies. Uh, we've done X-ray imaging, spectroscopy, all sorts of pigment image uh, analysis, uh, DNA sampling, all sorts of things. We're still analyzing some of the results, but it really blew us away because we found so many things that we, we never expected. And, and one of the most interesting things, so if, if you Google actually the title page of the Great Bible, usually you would find an image of a colored one, so the one in St. John's College, Cambridge. And this is, is a well-known image. It has been used in, in for covers of book on the English Reformation for, for quite a long time. But, but looking at the image actually with these new technologies is, is something that is different. And what we found, for example, using, using microscope and different light sources, is that specific faces were pasted over the image. So if you remember on the title page of the Great Bible, uh, Henry gives the Bible to two people, and then there are two people who distribute the Bibles. And the, on the laity side, so where Cromwell's coat of arms is, the faces of the two people, one receiving the Bible from Henry and one distributing the Bible, have been pasted over. And it's been, it's been done so professionally and so carefully that you literally need the microscope to see that. And that, of course, got us going and thinking, what's happening here? What we realized is, first of all, that this was intentional. So when we used some other light sources, we realized that the space underneath these very tiny portraits was originally left blank. So someone expected another person to paste it over. The other thing is that using pigment analysis, we realized that there are quite a few workshops working on color hand, coloring in uh, all the title pages, but they're using different pigments than the artists who made these portraits. So it was done in a different location. And to remind you, the Bible itself was printed in Paris and most likely is our continental workshop. So we think the two faces were hand colored in England. And probably Hornbad because there are about two people or workshops who are who could produce the work to that quality in England at the time, Holbein and Hornbad, and this, this looked like Hornbad. And then you think, why are they doing that? One reason could be that to get an accurate portrait of Cromwell, because 
the other people on the title page, Henry and possibly Jane Seymour, I can talk about it in a minute, yeah. would be well known or reasonably well known. And, and you could have access to, to their portraits, but Cromwell is not the case. So if he wanted an accurate depiction of himself, he would have needed to have to, to have this done in, in England. But the other thing I think, and this is what's really interesting, is this is reshuffling political power and balance on the page. So originally Cromwell, through his coat of arms, is affiliated with the person distributing Bibles. But during the course of printing the Bible, I think Cromwell is realizing, and here we really see, we can really see his, his thinking process, because I think what's happening then is realizing that Henry is really hesitant about that. And putting yourself as the person distributing Bibles to the laity is not the best place to be. So he's pasting his face next to the per on the person who's receiving the Bibles from Henry, which is by far a safer position. And the face of the person who's distributing the Bible is markedly different than that of Cromwell. So the person on top receiving the Bible from Henry is really looks like Cromwell from other portraits we know. But the person below does not. And we're wondering uh, who could that be? Uh, Dadon of Micholak suggested something and, and we followed that. And, and it is most likely actually, it looks like it's Richard Rich, which is really interesting because of course, Rich was instrumental in Cromwell's execution the following year. So if it's him, which looking just from the portrait perspective is a good chance, then it really th sheds light on Cromwell's thinking process and his reshuffling of political power at the time. Now, uh, you mentioned Jane Seymour, and I did read something about that. Do you want to tell us about Jane's possible inclusion on that title page? Uh, whilst colouring in, so, so the artists who were colouring the title page did not just, you know, colour by numbers. Some of them actually introduced important changes whilst they're colouring over the printed image. And probably the most significant change is to a figure of woman at the bottom right corner of the page. In the original print, it's just a generic woman sitting next to children. In the illustrated one, when they hand-colored it, they introduced important changes. They made her to look like a person, not just a generic figure. And her look is actually almost identical to the known portraits, the 1537 portrait of Jane Seymour. Now, more than that, when we did pigment analysis, we realized that on other elements of the title page, they used uh, shell gold, so, so gold that you ground and, and use it as a paint. For that woman, they used gold leaf. And also, and this is the only time they use gold leaf on that page, which is by far shinier. And her dress that looks very dull and gray was actually silver that got oxidized over time. So she was the most impressive element of that entire title page. And that's a portrait Jane Seymour analysis. There's even a new direction to this story that is still not finished yet, because it looked like there'd been two different campaigns for that image. So the first one is the Jane Seymour one, but then her dress was covered up. So Jane Seymour, if, if, if people remember the, uh, the, the, the 1537 portrait, has is wearing this kind of, of deep red dress with a very low neckline. And that was the original dress of that woman as well. And later it was covered in white. So there's another layer of transformation there, which is really interesting and might have something to do with the Cromwell's failed attempts of, of marriage to, to Henry, possibly. We still need to work on that more. And, and uh, they now, uh, in Cambridge, they got a new machine uh, that does surface XRF, which is the next thing we need for that. So this is probably the next thing we're going to do is, is more or less peel off layers virtually uh, once more and see the, the really 
to and try to separate the two stages of of coloring in there and then maybe seeing more about it and whether or not it actually has to do with, with Anne of Cleves and that wow. failed marriage that also led to Cromwell's uh, demise. Well, that is incredibly fascinating. So watch this space, I suppose, is the, is the message there and see what comes out of that. Now, so you mentioned the Great Bible was printed in 1539. Now, that same year, an act abolishing diversity in opinions, which I think people probably know as the Act of Six Articles, was passed by Parliament. The, the statute was supposed to clarify the beliefs of Henry's church and, and lay down the king's position on some of these kind of key issues that had been dividing conservatives and evangelicals for, for quite a while already. Can you tell us just about some of these key issues so we can get an idea of, of what's happening at around this time? It is really Henry's trying to clarify what's happening, and he is being very conservative there. He is moving away from the ideas of people like Cromwell and especially Cranmer in, for example, going against the marriage of clergy. And this is a big thing because Cranmer is married at the time. And very importantly, he is also clarifying his position about the Eucharist. And what he's saying is that this is transubstantiation. So, so it really is the bread and the wine becomes the blood and the flesh of Christ. And this is against what reformers are thinking at a time. So he's, he's in a way, is drawing a line in the sand and saying, no, I'm taking the reform to certain ends, uh, primarily in having an independent English church, but I'm not a reformer. And don't confuse what's happening with that. What's interesting is that if we think about it in the context of what I've been talking about today, is the role of the Bible in that. Because this is something that is safer. And we see that also after Henry's time, because if you look at the Book of Common Prayer during Edward VI's reign, there's most scholarly attention and most religious attention has been about the Eucharist, actually. And this huge controversy is about how to de describe the Eucharist. What is it? Is it a memory or is it a physical change and all of that? And this is really this kind of very clear boundary and litmus test between reformers and conservatives. The Bible is the common ground, okay? So I think by, by working on the Bible for, for Cromwell and for Cranmer, they're trying to push in a reform in a way that Henry would agree to, not through the Eucharist or through really contested elements like pilgrimage or saints worship or things like that, that, that you know, people would go to war about, but something that both reformers and conservatives would agree about. The clergy in England agreed that a Bible in the vernacular is a good idea, and that people reading the Bible, by and large, is not something that neither people in Rome nor people in London would disagree about. So, so, so that is why I think the Bible is, is such, a, such a, an interesting test case to, to look at these kind of changes, because it's something that is not the, the, the litmus test between reformers and conservatives, if that makes sense. Yes, yeah. And, and you were talking, obviously, before about that seesaw image and how you kind of adjusted that. But do you think that the king's position on any of these big issues or any issues at this time shift at all in the 1540s? It's a really good question. I'm not sure I'm the one to answer that in the best <laughs> way, because I, I'm not a theologian. No, no, that's okay. Um, so perhaps in your work, have you seen any, any your, evidence of that? Not really. I think he's just yeah. being himself. And, and people need to adjust to that. And he's being volatile and unpredictable. But I think in the long run, he's, he's pushing the same things he's been pushing for, for, for a very long time, uh, which, which are very limited. And that's why reformers are really flourishing in the, the period. 
under Edward VI, because suddenly they can do whatever they wanted. Whereas with Henry, both religiously, it was very restricted, but also politically, it was a very tense period. And I think Henry was very good at controlling things, trying to control them. And, and actually, looking at the Great Bible is, is, for me, one of the best examples of that, because how do we impose for each parish church to buy a Bible at a period that you don't have a civil service, you don't have police force? So how do you force every parish church to do that? How do you control it? They found an ingenious system, I think, in which parish churches would need to pay a hefty fine if they didn't have a copy of the Bible. And out of that fine, one half would go to the informer and one half would go to the crown. So Henry created a system in which people had a vested interest of snitching about their parish churches if they wouldn't have a Bible. And I think this is really distilling this kind of how to create an authoritarian uh, regime in a period that doesn't have the mechanism to do that, that you had in the 20th century, for example. So, so he was really trying to create, and I think his, his use of the Bible was part of his imagery. And I think this is one of the things why he didn't like the 1535 Bible, but he liked the Great Bible. Because think of a society before mass media, okay? How do you present your image? How do you disseminate ideas to people who can't read, but you want to reproduce it? So... It's very difficult to do if you don't have a TV or a newspaper, but with the Great Bible, and especially the title page of the Great Bible, suddenly you have this image that is really distilling Henry's idea of religion and authority in every parish church across the realm. And people are exposed to that. For, so for him, it's not just the Bible, but it's also the means to present and project his imagery, which of course you can do on coins, but coins are small and there's a limited amount of how much iconography you can cram into that. So I think this is part of what's happening then. Yeah, and it is quite a magnificent title, so it fits in with his um, desire to be seen as magnificent. Now, this has been really, really interesting. I've really enjoyed it. Now, at the end of episodes, just as a lighthearted end, I do like to play what I call a game of 10 to go with guests. So basically just 10 quick questions just to get to know you a little bit better. So hopefully you're okay with that. Question one, what was the last book that you bought? The last book that I bought, I think it was the catalogue of the Collar Exhibition in Cambridge. What about something that you love about where you live? I like to row. I live by a river and I got into rowing a couple of years ago. We probably haven't been travelling very much of late, but what is a favourite holiday destination for you? Deserts. Deserts? Yes. (laughs) Fabulous. And when you were a child, what did you want to be when you grew up? Um, A bin man. Did, Did you say a bin man? A bin man, yes. Ah, and question five. Apart from the, the 16th century, what other periods of history are you, do you feel drawn to? Second temple, Judaism. Yeah, this yep. early, very early Christianity. And are you an early riser or a night owl or somewhere in between? Early riser, certainly. Yep. And what about a movie that, or a film or, or even a series, really, that you've watched more than once? Uh, well, I must say Wolf's Hall, actually. I watched ah. A few times. Uh, I was recommended to it actually by a, a colleague of mine who's a curator and she's in uh, the business of medieval early modern shoes. And we were working together one day and she told me, you have to see this new series. The shoes there are amazing. <laughs> and yes, turn out a good series. <laughs> the, 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 the recreation there of, of the very small elements of, of Tudor life in terms of the shoes, the, 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 the clothes is very, very accurate. So, so that's according to her and some other <laughs> colleagues. I'm not an expert in that, but I really enjoyed watching that a couple of times. Yes. Fantastic. I'll have to watch it again now just to look at the shoes <laughs> and make sure I haven't missed anything. What about what's a favorite comfort food for you? 
Well, I made apple crumble with the kids the other day. Oh, that that is, very, that's yeah. a very good comfort food, I think. And you obviously have a lot of history surrounding you. So what's a, a, an historic site that you like to visit? The old city of Jerusalem is Ooh. one of my favorites. Yes, I would love to go there. And lucky last, what do you think is the ideal way to, to begin your day? Do you have any morning kind of rituals? Well, we have, I am a team that row at 5.30 in the morning. That is very early. And then we come back and have cake. We have a baking rota on the balcony. So that sounds that is good. A great nice starting the day. <laughs> I like that. That sounds really good. And then the very last thing that I ask all of my guests is for a Tudor takeaway. So basically, this is something for our listeners to go and explore after the show. Sometimes people recommend books, movies, songs, um, websites. Do you have a Tudor takeaway for us? Yes, I would recommend something that is not just Tudor, but there are a lot of Tudor elements there. So I've been working with the Museum of London for a long time, and I've, there's a, a course I'm teaching together uh, with the museum on uh, medieval early modern objects. And there's a discover section of the, on the Museum of London website. And some of the, 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 the best works of my students also feature there, but it's mainly written by curators. So they update that regularly. And you can find a lot of things that are really interesting in terms of uh, early modern London on, on that section. So if you just Google discover Museum of London, you would find this. And I think now they have something about mudlocks, for example, are the people who, who look for uh, metal detectorists who are working on, on the banks of the Thames. And, and they find all sorts of exciting things from early modern period and there's another piece about fishing in the Thames and the small ice age that was written by a former student of mine uh, and also some uh, some other very exciting stuff so it's it's being updated regularly and you can always find something nice there about Tudor times and discovery in London so that's a good one and I actually don't think that in all the episodes I've had that one suggested before so thank you very much and it sounds like a, a good way to you know a good deep rabbit hole to fall into and spend some hours in so thank you and thank you so much for coming onto the show and talking tutors with us. Thank you very much Natalie it's been a pleasure. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. <laughs> <laughs>